Well, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn with me to Luke chapter 6. We are working our way through this book, verse by verse. Um, And next week, we're going to be a quarter of the way through it. Isn't that exciting? We're we're, we're moving. We're moving. And uh, last week, we began to make our way through this sermon that Jesus taught to his disciples. And it's often referred to as the Sermon on the Plain. In this sermon, Jesus is he's speaking to a large gathering of his disciples, not just the 12 that he just appointed as his apostles, but he's, he's talking to a large crowd that is gathered. In verse 17, we're told it's a, a large gathering of his disciples and a large crowd of people that had come from all over to hear Jesus. And in verse 20, we read that Jesus, he lifted up his eyes and, and he sees his disciples and then he began to teach them. He looks around at this great crowd of of his followers, and he says, let me tell you, let me tell you what being one of my followers should look like. That's what he's going to cover in this this sermon. What does it look like to be a follower of Jesus? Jesus wants Christians to know how they're supposed to think, how they're supposed to live. And what we discover in this sermon sermon of Jesus, is that followers of Jesus are expected to think and to live in a radically different way than the world. We are not supposed to look like everybody else. We're not supposed to think like everybody else. We're not supposed to act like everybody else. Jesus sets a much, much higher bar for his his followers. Last week, we looked at just the first seven verses in this uh, sermon. We looked at verses 20 to 26. And what we saw is that being a follower of Jesus changes the way that we view our circumstances, particularly the way that we view the suffering that we have to endure as a result of following Jesus. For those of you who are here, you remember that Jesus began his sermon with a, a contrast, right? It was a contrast between those who are living for Jesus and his eternal kingdom and those who are living for the temporary pleasures of the world. You remember that we, we talked about the, the blessed are you and he goes through a whole list of things, right? Four of them. And then he, ta- he said, but woe to you. And it's a complete reversal of the way that we normally think, right? Jesus said, blessed are the poor, but woe to the rich, right? Blessed are those who weep now and woe to those who are parting it up and enjoying life now. Jesus looks into the eyes of his disciples and, and he, knows that, he knows that they're going to be facing all kinds of, of different persecution. He knows that, that, that they're going to experience poverty. They're going to experience hunger. They, he knows they're going to experience weeping and tears and pain and suffering. For what? For their decision to follow him. They're going to be persecuted for this. And so Jesus looks them in the eyes and he says, listen, when this happens to you, when the suffering comes, you need to know that you are truly blessed. It may not seem like it now, and that word now was really important, right? It may not seem like it now, but you are truly blessed. You're so blessed if you suffer for my sake. You're so blessed that he says you can rejoice when you suffer. Not, not just rejoice like on the inside. He says you can actually leap for joy. We talk about that. That's crazy, right? 
When, we, when we're persecuted for our faith, is that what we normally think to do? Like go out and do a heel click, right? Woohoo! Life is good, getting punished and persecuted for my faith in Jesus. It's awesome. But that's what Jesus says. And he says why? He says, because yours is the kingdom of God. And great is your reward in heaven. See, what, what Jesus is dealing with here is he's changing the perspective. He's calling his disciples to have a different lens that they view the world. He wants us to have an eternal perspective, an eternal lens through which we process everything. He says, don't, don't get caught up. Don't get caught up in pursuing the temporary pleasures of the world, things like riches, fame, food, and, and pleasure. Why? Because they're not going to last. They're not going to last. And the people who make these things their priority... What he said in, in, in the verses we looked at last week is that the people who make these things their priority, they're the ones who are going to end up empty and weeping in the end. Don't be jealous of those who seem to have it all now, but don't have Jesus. If you've got Jesus, I don't care what you have, you've got enough, right? And so last week we saw that following Jesus changes the way that we view our circumstances, as we follow him, we develop this eternal perspective. We, we see things through a different lens. And that lens, we're going to see this morning, is also going to change the way that we relate to others, even our enemies. Last week, I warned you. I, I told you, I said, listen, if you think this week is hard, just wait till next week. We're going to talk about loving our enemies. I'm actually pleasantly surprised that so many of you actually came back because I did warn you. And somebody on the way, one couple on the way out the door said, we'll be here. We'll be here. We know we need to hear this. So, so good. I'm, I'm, and they did. They're here. So I'll, I won't look at them right now to embarrass them. No, just kidding. But if you thought last week was tough, honestly, if you thought what we looked at last week, the idea of rejoicing when you suffer... I'm telling you, you're, you're, you're going to want to buckle up today. Seriously, you're going like, to put on the strap in your chair because what Jesus is about to teach, what, what we're about to read, it, this, is, this is totally radical. This is totally radical. It's, it's completely counterintuitive. But it is also, and, and I don't want you to miss this, it is also the behavior that Jesus expects from those who follow him. Don't dismiss this as just, oh, it's just too hard. Chalk that up as one of the things that Jesus says to do, but uh, never going to happen, right? Don't go there in your mind. Jesus expects this from his followers. So it's tough, and I didn't like it, and you probably won't like it either, but we're going to look at what Jesus has to say. So if you have your Bible with you, let's continue our study of this, this sermon. We're going to look at verse, uh, begin in verse 27. Luke chapter 6, verse 27, Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Simple, right? Easy enough. There it is. We can all go home now, right? That's easy. No, no, this is, this is, this is tough. Love your enemies? This is not simple at all. 
I mean, well, technically, it's simple enough to understand, right? I mean, it's not like, pretty sure I'm going to need a dictionary to understand what Jesus is saying here. Any, any words that are too big? It's like, yeah, break it down for me. Make it a little easier. What do you mean by enemy? What do you mean by love, you know? It's not like it's, it's too hard to understand, but putting it into practice, well, that's a different story, isn't it? What Jesus is, is commanding here is incredibly difficult. And actually, humanly speaking, th this is impossible, right? You cannot do this on your, with your own strength. You can't. But it is not impossible, is it? This is not impossible. Jesus would not command you to do something that you cannot do with his help, with his help. When you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you can do this. You can literally love your enemies. You can do what Jesus is asking you to do. The first thing that I, I want you to notice in, in these first couple of verses is that Jesus is addressing a, a particular group amongst the group of disciples, okay? So he's got, he's got his disciples are all here, and then he says, but I say to you who, what's it say? To hear. He says, I say to you who hear. And I want to be clear, when Jesus says, I say to you who hear, he's not talking about those who have the ability to process sound through these two appendages that stick off the side of your head, okay? Listen, everybody in that crowd had the ability to hear. And you can say, well, what about people who are deaf? If you read the first few verses of chapter 17, 18, 19, Jesus just got done healing everybody who was sick. So, so at least in this crowd, everybody had the ability to hear, all right? So he's not talking about that. What is Jesus talking about? He's talking about those who have a heart, a heart to hear and to apply what he is teaching. It's, it's the difference between those who are hearing and those who are actually listening. If you have kids or a husband, <laughs> you know that there's a difference, Right? Not everybody who is hearing is actually listening. Do you know what Jesus calls a person who, who, who hears but doesn't listen? Do, do you know what he calls them? Anybody? A fool. He calls them a fool. You read that in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, the difference between a wise person and a fool is that the wise person hears my words and does them. He doesn't just hear it. He listens and puts it into practice. That's a wise person. But a fool hears my words and doesn't do them. My prayer for, for you and for me this morning is that we would be the type of people who truly hear what Jesus is saying, that, that we would have hearts, not just to process the sound, but to take it into our hearts and say, God, help me to apply these truths to my life. I, I know I'm not going to do it perfectly, but with your help, I know that I can learn to love my enemies. Second thing that I want you to see in, in these first couple of verses is that the teaching here begins, well, it's really a continuation from last week, and that's my point, is that Jesus begins this section of, of the sermon with a but, right? But 
I say to you. And this but tells us that what Jesus is about to say is directly related to what he has just finished talking about. And in verse 22, Jesus described the type of persecution that his disciples are gonna face as a result of following him. He said, this is what he said. He said, people are going to hate you. They are going to exclude you. They're going to revile you. They're gonna spurn your name as evil. Why? On account of the son of man. This is what's gonna happen to you. This, this is how you're gonna be treated because of your decision to be a follower of mine. But, 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 that is not how you are gonna treat others. That's what Jesus is saying. So this transition, this but is saying, that's how you're gonna be treated, but you're not gonna do that back to them or to anybody else. Let me ask you a question. When people hate you, when they exclude you, and when they revile you, which by the way, to revile someone means to criticize them in an angry, insulting, and abusive manner. When they spurn your name as evil, what is the natural response? How do people typically respond to that type of thing? Go ahead, shout it out. Okay, I heard retaliation. Anger, defensive, anybody else? My hearing's not so good. <laughs> Lord, help me to hear. Uh, <laughs> all right, I, I heard some. But here's the thing. There's, there's really two typical normal responses to this type of thing, okay? Two typical responses. We have, we have terms from fight or, right? Fight or flight. You either get even or you get away, right? That, those are two very typical responses when, when we're being attacked by those who hate us, by our, our enemies. But Jesus, as he often does, calls his followers to a radically different way of living and relating to others. Jesus says, he says, not only, not only should my followers rejoice and leap for joy when they are persecuted, they should also love the ones who are persecuting them. What? What? I mean, it's not enough to just run away? To get away from the pain? Jesus says, no, no, that's not enough. I want you to love them. Love them. He looks at his followers and say, I say to you, love them your enemies. Now, we're going to talk more about what loving our enemies looks like in a minute, but first, can, can we just all agree, can we agree that what Jesus is, is expecting from his followers is radically different from what is taught or expected in our culture and in our world? Do you agree that this is very, very different? This is not a typical teaching. I don't care where you go. You might, you might I mean, there are definitely those who would tell you that you should not retaliate. Can you find people who would teach you that? Don't retaliate. Don't seek revenge, right? You'll find people who say, you need, to, you need to forgive, forgive them, right? And sometimes it's even for selfish reasons. They say, you need to forgive them because you're the one that's suffering, right? 
But Jesus, it's, 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 it's more than that. Jesus says, it's not enough for my followers to simply hold back from retaliation or to refrain from seeking revenge. I want you to love the one who is persecuting you. Come again? This this is life on on a whole other level, isn't it? How many of you guys have, everybody here got it this down? Go ahead. Raise that hand high and proud. I love everyone, no matter how much they persecute me. I I got this, right? I got it. (laughs) I mean, this is so hard. But here's the thing. The same eternal perspective that enables us to rejoice in suffering, the same, that, that same eternal lens that we, that we process our suffering through that allows us to rejoice, that same perspective is what will allow us to love those who are persecuting us. Why? Because we see them as souls, right? What they're doing, this is not excused behavior, right? Jesus isn't saying it's okay to be a bad person, to be abusive. That's not what he's saying here, is he? but Jesus loves him. I mean, how about the fact that Jesus loved Judas? How about the fact that we talked about a couple weeks, Jesus chose Judas. How about the fact that Jesus washed Judas's feet on the very night that Judas would walk up and kiss him on the cheek and say, here you go, kill him. Jesus loved an enemy, someone who was betraying him to death. This is a radical teaching. It's radical to us, right? We hear it and we're like, wow, this is hard. But you need to understand, I think it was actually harder for the original audience to hear than it is for us. It was harder for them. You see, at that time, at that time, the prevalent teaching in in the day of Jesus was this. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's what they were taught. So if you were, you, were, you were a Jew living you know, around Israel at that time and, and you went and you, you sat around one of the teachings of the Pharisees or the Essenes, any of those groups, what they taught you is that you were to love your neighbors and you were to hate your enemies. In the way that they defined a neighbor, this is a neighbor, anybody who believes and thinks the way you do. Love those who think and behave the same way as you. Love them. Everyone else? Hate them. Treat them as an enemy. Treat them as an enemy. They felt completely justified to hate anyone who didn't think or behave as they did. And by the way, we can dismiss that as like, what an archaic way of thinking. Oh, come on. Just turn on the news, right? And and don't don't, don't turn on the news and point the finger. Look at how all those people just hate us Christians. Oh, come on, Christians, right? We're pretty good at hating those that don't think the way we do, too. This is, this, is, this is a human problem, right? We have a tendency to love those who love us and hate those who think differently than us. But this is what they were being taught. This is what they were being taught. So Jesus comes along and he says, he says no, no. This is not how my followers are gonna treat others. Jesus comes along and in Matthew chapter five, the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, this is what you're being taught. I get it. I get it. But I say to you, love your enemies. Now, think about this for a second. If I'm being taught 
the, the, the spiritual leaders of the day are saying, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to hate your enemies. And now I go out and love them. What am I doing? I am sinning. I'm doing the thing I'm not supposed to do. Jesus is coming along. He's saying, I, I, I got a new teaching for you. Do this instead of that. And they're like, but what, if I do that, then I'm breaking this rule over here, right? They probably thought that what Jesus was calling them to do was, was rebellious, to love an enemy, to love a sinner, to love somebody who doesn't honor God. This was totally radical teaching for his original audience. It went against everything that they had been taught. Jesus said, love your enemies. And the word, I said, do we really need a definition for love? Well, yes, you do. So here it is. The word, because in Greek, there's a lot of different words that he could have chose for love, right? We have one word. I love pizza. I love my wife. I love God. I love, you know, right? We love everything. And because we have one word, it's like we're left to try to figure out what does he mean by that? It's like, whoa, does he really love pizza? You know, <laughs> what does that mean? But in Greek, they had different words to capture different feelings and, and emotions. And the word that's used here is the word agape. And it's a word, it is, it's considered the highest form of love in the Greek language. Sometimes it's, it's actually referred to as divine love. It's a deep, a pure, a self-sacrificing and unconditional type of love. It's the type of love that, it's the type of love that seeks the highest and the greatest good for others. That's what agape is. By the way, the Bible says that God so agape the world that he sent his son. That's the type of love that we're talking about here. So when Jesus says you need to love your enemy, it's not like the way that you would love ice cream, okay? I like it. I like a good sunset. I like a good enemy, you know? No, this is I, you self-sacrificial type of love that says, I want what's best for them. I want the very best for them. Let me ask you another question. What is the very highest and greatest good that could be accomplished for your enemies? What's the highest good that could happen to your enemies? Say it. Yeah, salvation, coming to know Jesus, right? That's the greatest good that could happen to your enemies, to, to be forgiven of their sins and to receive his grace and his mercy. Jesus says, this is how my followers should view their enemies, loving them and seeking their greatest good, doing whatever is necessary, self-sacrificial uh, self living so that their enemies might come to know me. That's how he wants us to relate to them. And so then he says, here's how you're gonna do it. Here's, here's how you're gonna do it. Again, this is verses 27, 28. Do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. How do you love your enemies? How do you love your enemies? How, how is love demonstrated to them? It's demonstrated in what we do, it's demonstrated in what we say, and it's demonstrated in how we pray. What we do, what we say, and how we pray. First, it's demonstrated in what we do. He says, do good to those who hate you. So if someone is hateful towards you, don't respond back by being hateful. That's, that's a natural response, right? 
We already said that. That's the natural response. Anybody can do that. The Christ-like response is to do good for them, to do things that, that are beneficial for them. Followers of Jesus are to respond to hate with loving actions. In Romans chapter 12, verse 21, Paul says, do not uh, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The question that we should be asking when we are persecuted, and again, particularly in this context, he's dealing with suffering for your faith, although I would say that it would apply to anybody who mistreats you, right? Because the greatest good for anyone is to know Christ. But the question we should be asking is, what good thing can I do for those who hate me? <laughs> I just, my mind doesn't go there, right? Not naturally, not naturally. Second thing Jesus says is that love is demonstrated in what we say. Bless those who curse you. When someone is cursing you, right, when they're, when they're speaking destructive and painful words about you, what is the natural response? What's the natural thing? We, we want to retaliate, right? We, we want to, someone said it before, we want to defend ourselves. That's not true. We want to retaliate. We, want to, we, we, we might want to curse them, right? We might want to speak negatively to others about them and tear their name down in the same way that they're trying to tear ours down. You can't believe what he's saying. Did you know what he did? He's talking that way about me. You ought to hear what he did. And so you curse them as well. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, bless them. Bless them. Now, to bless someone, <laughs> to bless someone is to speak goodness into their lives. So when someone curses you, or they're speaking evil about you, Jesus says, speak well of them. Speak well to them. Speak life-giving words to them. <sighs> really? I mean, this is hard, right? This is not easy stuff. The third thing that Jesus says is that love is demonstrated in how we pray. Pray for those who abuse you. When your enemies persecute you, Pray for them. Pray that God would change their hearts. Pray that they would see your Christ-like response. Pray that as they see that Christ-like response, that they would turn their hearts to Jesus. Pray that God would forgive them, that he would be merciful to them. I read something this morning someone posted, a friend of mine from years ago, it was talking about just how their marriage was, had hit a point where they thought it was over. They thought it was over. And this person said, my, my husband, not only did, did he not love me anymore, I don't think he liked me anymore. And, and she said that what she, what she began doing is every night she prayed for him. But after he would fall asleep, she would reach over, she'd put her hand on his back, 
and she would pray that God would change his heart towards her, that he would forgive her, and that they would be able to move forward and, and repair their broken marriage. And uh, they're, they're celebrating now, uh, I think it's like a decade now, uh, beyond that moment, and, and their life and their marriage is now thriving. But God can do that when we pray for others. Someone who was her husband had become an, an enemy living in the same house. You've probably heard this before, but it's really, really difficult. I, I, it might even be impossible to genuinely pray for someone in, in the way that Jesus is describing here and to hate them at the same time. You heard that before? It's, it's hard to pray for someone genuinely asking God to forgive them and to change them and to, that they would experience his grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and at the same time, hate them and want what's bad for them. You see the problem? You can't do that. When we pray for our enemies, when we bless our enemies, when we do good for our enemies, something remarkable happens inside us. It's an internal work of the Holy Spirit. The natural feelings that we have of anger, hate, retaliation, and judgment, they're replaced with feelings of genuine concern, affection, a desire for grace, mercy, and forgiveness, and love to be experienced for that person. Which, I believe, is why Jesus doesn't tell his disciples to wait until they feel love to begin showing love. Look at, look at the things he gave us through here. Do you see what they are? They're not feelings, are they? What are those? They're actions. They're things that you, that you do. Listen, if, if we wait, if we wait to feel love for our enemies, we may never show love to them. But if we do what Jesus is saying here and we show love to our enemies, we may eventually feel love for them. But if you wait, it's probably not going to happen, right? It's probably not going to happen. Loving our enemies means seeking their greatest good, and it changes, it changes how we respond to them. It changes what we do. It changes what we say, and it changes how we pray. Well, in verses 29 and 30, Jesus continues, and he gives, he gives four examples. This is not an exhaustive list, okay? He's just going to give four examples of what this type of look, uh, love might look like as you, as you put this into practice and as his original audience put this into practice. He says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. From the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Easy. It's just so easy, this whole thing. Like, I have to begin, I have to begin by saying that these verses are often misunderstood, okay? These, these are misunderstood and misapplied. L let me start by telling you what Jesus is not saying. I've already hinted to it earlier, but let me, let, let me just say this. Jesus is not telling his followers that they need to be a doormat or a punching bag for those with abusive behaviors. That is not what Jesus is, is telling his followers. He is not condoning abuse, although these verses get used that way, don't they? 
they do. He's not telling his followers to become enablers for for sinful and destructive habits and addictions of others. He says, oh, you asked me for money so you can buy drugs? Sure, here it is. Is that what Jesus is saying? No, of course not. Because that wouldn't be the greatest good for them, would it? To give them money to feed an addiction wouldn't be the best thing for them. If love is seeking the greatest good for another, sometimes the greatest good that we can do for someone is to allow them to experience the consequences of their behavior. And this is the point you all go, whew, I like this part. (laughs) Finally, something I can agree with in this message. Sometimes the, the best thing we can do for someone is to let the authorities step in and to let them provide them with the help they need. But remember, God appoints judges and he appoints authorities to administer justice. It's not your job to administer justice in the lives of others. Your job is to love them, bless them, do good for them, and pray for them. And sometimes the greatest good you can do is allow them to experience the consequences for their sin. They need they need the help, right? It's not helpful to leave somebody in that, in that place. So we get them what they need so they can be set free. So if it's not that, if Jesus isn't promoting that, then what is he talking about here? Well, it does help to have some cultural context for this. When he says, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, in that culture, a common practice was you, uh, that was used to dishonor or to shame someone was to strike them with a, with, with a backhand across the face. It was, it, was a, it was done as a form of punishment, and it was intended to humiliate and publicly shame the person for their behavior. And so you, it could happen if, if a judge ruled against you. As part of your punishment, maybe the person who accused you would be allowed to come up and strike you across the face. That was allowed. Some of you are like, that'd be so sweet. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that they don't do that today. My cheeks would be really sore, right? But the other thing that you need to know is that this was a practice that was really common when someone was going to be excommunicated from the Jewish synagogue in that culture. If a person was being kicked out of the synagogue, and by the way, to be kicked out of the synagogue, that was like, that was the most shameful thing that could happen to a Jew because the synagogue was the heart of the Jewish community. Everything revolved around the synagogue in the community. So, but as, as part of the punishment, if you were going to be kicked out of the synagogue, you might be called up in front of the people and you would be, receive a backhand across the face on your, on your way out the door. You have now been publicly shamed and humiliated. You're no longer welcome as part of this community. Can you think of some people in the Bible who are going to be publicly shamed and humiliated and kicked out of the synagogue? Jesus' followers. In John chapter 16, Jesus warned his disciples. He warned them. He said, the time is coming when they are going to put you out of the synagogue because of your decision to follow me. That's what's coming. That's what, there's, a, there's a time that is coming when you are going to be publicly shamed for this decision to be my disciple. There's a time coming when you're going to get your face slapped for this decision. And when that time comes, when that happens, do not retaliate. Do not. When they strike you on the cheek, turn the other one also. 
accept the punishment. When you're persecuted for following me, I want you to keep on loving them. Keep loving them. Keep on doing good for them. Keep on praying for them. And if they take away your cloak, by the way, the cloak was the, was the outer garment that a person would wear. Usually they had two garments. They had the outer, the cloak, and then they had the tunic, which was the undergarment. He says, if they take away your outer garment, don't withhold your undergarment. That's a problem, <laughs> right? Talk about shame, right? Well, it's probably more shameful in that world than it is in, in our, our world today, but it would be shameful. What Jesus is describing here is, is the willingness to, to endure repeated suffering in order to continue loving, reaching out, and doing good to those who need redemption, to those who need salvation. He says, that the type of love that I'm calling to you says, you can do anything to me. You can take my cloak, you can take my tunic, you can take everything I have, but I am not gonna stop loving you. I'm gonna keep loving you until you take my last breath. That's what Jesus is calling his people to. It's, it's, it's an eternal perspective, right? It's a lens of seeing their souls instead of seeing my cloak. But it's my favorite cloak. Yeah, but they're gonna go to hell. Right? When you develop the eternal perspective that Jesus is calling to you, you, you material possessions, they lose their grip on your heart, right? You're like, yeah, it's a great cloak. It's one of my favorites. My grandmother gave it to me. You know? but, but at the end of the day, your salvation means more to me than maintaining and keeping my cloak. What do you need? You need my tunic too? I'm gonna do what's best for you. Is that what you need? I'll give it to you. And this is the type of perspective that Jesus wants his followers to have. That's what he's describing here. He wants us to realize that people are not our enemies. They may hate you, right? But you don't hate them. People are not your enemies. People, listen, people are our mission. That's the reality. No matter how much a person persecutes us, no matter what they put us through, they are still a soul in need of a savior. Followers of Jesus develop an eternal perspective which enables us to love those who persecute us in hopes that they too will be saved. And by the way, there is no greater example of this than Jesus, right? Jesus endured the incredible public humiliation and shame when he was arrested in the garden that night after Judas betrayed him, right? When he was dragged before the authorities, when he was stripped of his clothes, when he was beaten, when they pressed a, a crown of thorns on top of his head and they, and they mocked him, they reviled him, right? Did he open his mouth in retaliation back? He hung on a cross, the sinless son of God who had never done anything wrong, hung, wrong, hung on a cross and what did he do? At, at, at what was his response? He prayed for them. Right? What did Jesus pray when he was on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Stephen did the same thing. You remember in, in the book of Acts when Stephen was martyred? Father, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. You, you can pray the same thing for those who persecute you. 
Forgive them, Father. They don't realize what they're doing. They don't realize. They don't realize that they need you. Help me, God, to keep loving them, doing good to them, praying for them. Whew, it's not easy. It's not easy. Verse 31, he says, this kind of like summarizes, you know, if, if you, if you want to have a general rule on, how to, on what you're supposed to do, think about it this way. Verse 31, as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. What do we call that? The golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. <clears throat> Jesus says, hey, listen, you, you, you want to know how to treat your enemies? You want to know how to treat them? Treat them the way that you want to be treated. We don't have a problem treating other people, like a stranger, right? How, how do you treat a stranger? Treat them the way that you want to be treated. How do you, want, how do you treat your, your wife, your kids, your family members, your neighbors? Treat them the way that you want to be treated. But Jesus says, no, not, that's how I want you to treat your neighbor, uh, your enemy, the one who's persecuting, the one who hates you, the one who's reviling you. Treat them the way that you want to be treated. Don't, don't treat them the way that they treat you. Don't do that. Anybody can do that. Jesus is calling his disciples to a radical way of living, a way of relating to others that is countercultural, completely counterintuitive. But you know what? It is a way of relating to others that makes it absolutely obvious that something internal has taken place in your life. Jeff said it earlier. You can't do this, right? You can't, I can't do this. But when I do it, when I do it, when I put these words into practice, it is evidence of something internal that's happening, a work of the Holy Spirit that is living inside of me. And you know what that is? That is a testimony to the people around us, isn't it? It's a testimony to, to what God has done. You know, we talk about the idea that, you know, Jesus said, people will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. Well, I tell you, that's true, 100%. But they'll also know you're his disciples when they see you loving your enemies. When you treat your enemies the way Jesus is calling you to do, people are like, what? How is that even possible? It's the work of the Holy Spirit living inside me. God's done a work. He has forgiven me so much, and he allows me and enables me to do to extend the same grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness to others. It's amazing. It's powerful. Well, in verse 32, Jesus continues, and he says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, and they get back the same amount. By the way, that third part about lending, Jesus isn't talking about repaying a loan. The Bible says if you take out a loan, you gotta repay it. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the practice of giving to others in order to get something back. <laughs> if I give to him, then he owes me. That's what he's talking about. But Jesus says if, if, you, if you only love those who love you, how are you any different than anyone else? Everybody can do that. That's easy. That's natural. Jesus, basically, he looks at his crowd and he says, whoop-de-doo. Oh, wow, congratulations. You love those who love you. Wow. Give them a ribbon, right? He's not that sarcastic, okay? 
But he says, what, 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 what benefit is that? Anybody can do that. He said, I'm calling you to live in a way that, only, that you can only do through the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And in verse 35, he describes what that is. He says, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. You'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Hey, two verses you want to take out of it to summarize Jesus' sermon? Do unto others which you have done to you and be merciful as your father is merciful. You put those two into practice, you're going to love your enemies. That is true. Be merciful as your father is merciful. This is, this, Jesus is calling us to a supernatural way of living, to relate to our enemies in a way that only his followers are able to do. Now, I do want to make something really clear um, about what Jesus says in this verse, when he says, um, you will be sons of the Most High. So if you do this, you will be sons of the Most High. I, I wanna make sure that you don't misunderstand what he is, is saying there. So I'm gonna quote Pastor Kent Hughes. He says, when, when Jesus says, you will be sons of the Most High, this is the Hebrew way of saying we will be like the Most High, like God himself, to love one's enemies is to be like Christ and like the Father. When we do good to our enemies, we are like Christ. When we bless those who curse us, we are like Christ. When we pray for those who abuse us, we are like Christ. And listen, this is important. That likeness is our reward. The reward is that you're becoming like Jesus. That's the reward. Jesus' followers, we, we don't do all of these things. We don't love our enemies, bless them, pray for them, so that we can become children of God. We do them because we are children of God. This, this countercultural, counterintuitive, supernatural way of relating to our enemies, loving them, blessing them, praying for them, doing good for them, that is evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in your life, making you more and more like your Savior, Jesus. That's a good thing, and that is your reward. Jesus says, my followers, my disciples are called to be merciful even as their father is merciful. Are you glad that God extended mercy towards you? Yeah. Did you deserve it? No, of course not. But he was merciful towards us. In Psalm 103, we read, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that great? Aren't you grateful for God's mercy? He's so gracious and he's so merciful to us. And guess what? The Bible says that he loved us while we were still sinners. He loved us while we were his enemies. Romans chapter five, we read, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Talk about giving up your cloak or your tunic. He gave up his son. 
to redeem us. In verses 37 and 38, and this is where we're going to wrap things up for today, Jesus describes the reward, the, the, the blessing, you could say, that God gives to those who live their lives this way. He says, judge not, and you'll not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For the measure that you use it, it will be measured back to you. In other words, you could sum this up in, in just a five words. You reap what you sow. And Jesus, is, he's not talking about eternal judgment and forgiveness in these verses. He already talked about that in, in the first part of this sermon, the idea that you are, you're children of God. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. He is talking about what we're going to experience in this life. If you're someone who, who is always judging and you're always condemning others, don't be surprised if you're on the receiving end of judgment and condemnation. How many of you know that to be true? I can tell you from my own personal experience that I often feel the weight of judgment and condemnation from others without them having to say anything in the very same areas that I have been judgmental and condemning of others. And you know this is true in your own life too. And if you don't, just ask your wife, right? She'll tell you, she'll tell you. We'd experience a whole lot more freedom if we were a lot more generous and gracious to others, wouldn't we? But let me also say this, because this, this verse right here is another one of those ones that people are really quick to quote, okay? Jesus says, judge not. Judge not. That's true. He does. We are not the judge. You're not the judge. I am not the judge. We should not be putting ourselves in that seat of judgment on anyone, it's not your job. That's his job. Only God is, is qualified to sit on the throne of judgment, right? Only God. But Jesus is not saying that we should never confront others about their sins because that's when people like to quote that. You go up to a brother or sister and say, hey, I'm really concerned about such and such a behavior. The Bible says judge not. What do you think you are? I think I'm a brother who loves you and cares for you. I want to see you set free from this. Jesus is the judge. I'm not the judge. I'm warning you that there is a judge. That's a loving thing to do. But when you do it, you know the difference if you're coming at them in judgment or you're coming at them as a caring brother or sister. You know the difference. When you're doing it right, your heart is to see them repent and to walk closely with Jesus, not to make yourself look good or anything like that. We'll talk more about that next week in the, in the last part of this sermon. But along with the two negatives he gives about judging and condemning, Jesus also gives a few positives. He says, if you are the one who sows forgiveness, you're going to reap forgiveness. If you're one who gives, it's going to be given to you. And I love this description, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. And that helps again to have a little bit of a cultural context with this. Because this, this is a word picture that his audience would have totally understood. Chuck Swindoll says that normally, normally a person 
expecting to purchase grain would carry a container to the merchant. Bring your container, fill it up. But a person unprepared to receive grain would simply hike up the front of their tunic to form a pouch, sort of a a lap to hold the grain. So Jesus' illustration suggests a surprise blessing. They weren't expecting, they didn't have their bucket with them, so I gotta make a, in my lap, I gotta carry the grain in my lap. Furthermore, the expression to be pressed down, shaken together, running over, pictures generosity on the part of the person who is doling out the grain. They don't merely pour the grain into the lap pouch, they pack the grain in as densely as possible. Jesus assured his followers that the grace that they give out will come back to them in surprising ways and with overflowing abundance. Don't let that be the motivation for why you do what he says, but it is pretty cool to hear that if I do what he's saying to do, there are some good blessings that come along with it. Amen? Well, there you have it. Easy, right? So easy. So I know that this week you're going to love your enemies. You're going to do good for them. You're going to pray for them. Look, I don't know where you're at. and Maybe you've got people in your mind. Just can you be a hearer, right? Let's be hearers. Let's listen to what Jesus is saying, saying, Jesus, help me. I want to put this into practice. I want to grow in this area. I know you can do it because he won't ask you to do something you can't do. He's given you his Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've got his Holy Spirit in you to help you do what he's asking you to do here. Next week, we'll hopefully wrap up the the last part of this, this sermon on the plane. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and, and we admit our, our, our weakness that, that in our own strength, this is absolutely impossible, what you're asking us to do here, but we actually know that it is possible because we have you living in us. And so God, we come to you, we say, Lord, please search our hearts, search our minds. Lord, would you expose the, the people in our lives to us that that we need to be praying for, the people that we need to be forgiving, the people that we need to be extending grace and mercy towards, the ones that we need to to be kind to and good to and to bless. We want to love everyone, even our enemies, Lord. Because we know that when we do this, we know that that sets us apart from the rest of the world. We're doing something that is not possible otherwise. And God, we believe that as we walk in obedience to you, that that we're going to be a light Your word tells us to let our light shine in such a way that people will see our good deeds. People will see the way we love our enemies and they'll say, what is up with that? And you, God, our Father in heaven, will get all the glory. That's our prayer. Move in and through us, Jesus. We pray, amen.